This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Let's begin this Bible class. This morning, by having a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Well, wait a minute. We already did that in communion, didn't we? Let's just open in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity we have to study Your Word now. And Father, as we get into Your Word and as we see these remarkable truths about our Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry during the Incarnation, we pray that You would help us to understand these things, to give us a a much greater appreciation of who He is and what He has done for us, and beyond that, to understand this magnificent plan of Yours and how this relates to our lives. So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and we are going to begin this morning with one of the most incredible chapters in the Gospel. Having said that, I want you to remember that when the Apostle John penned this Gospel, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. Verse divisions weren't added until the 1540s or 1550s by a man named uh, uh, Robert Stevens, I believe, on horseback in the Greek Testament. He did it on a Greek Testament, riding horseback, from Lyon, France, to Paris. Uh, Chapter divisions were inserted sometime earlier, in the early Middle Ages. And the reason I point that out is because chapter 9 and chapter 10 flow together. You must understand the events of chapter 9 if you're going to properly understand and interpret the events of chapter 10. But before we get started, just to make sure I have everybody's attention... I got a list of important little definitions to sort of stimulate our thinking this morning. Christian definitions. Choir. This, this relates to us. Choir. A group of people whose singing allows the rest of the congregation to lip sync. Hymn. A song of praise usually sung in a key three octaves higher than that of the congregation's range. I think that's true of every, every hymn book. Ushers, the only people in the church who don't know the seating capacity of a pew. And a pew is a medieval torture device still found in most Christian churches. Well, John chapter 10 is the discourse on the Good Shepherd. Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd. He is called the Great Shepherd and He is the Chief Shepherd. This introduces the discourse on the Good Shepherd. Now, one of the basic rules of interpretation is context. Scripture must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. And Scripture must be interpreted within its context. 
Now, there are three different aspects to Bible study, as uh, we were taught at Dallas Seminary. The first is observation. And that looks at the text and says, what is there? That is a very important aspect. You have to go through this procedure. What is there? What are the things there? What's a parts of speech? What are parsing the verbs? Uh, classifying the nouns? All of those different things. The second stage is interpretation. And that asks the question, what does it mean? It does not answer the question, what does that mean to me? That is not the issue in interpretation. The Apostle John did not write this Gospel to you. It is written to you by extension and by application, but not directly. Paul did not write to us the epistles of the first Corinthians. He wrote that to a particular people in a particular time, in a particular place, going through, going through particular problems. When we understand and properly interpret what he was saying to them, then we develop application to us. Now, all of this is going to become apparent in a minute, why I'm going through this. Interpretation and then application. Application then asks the question, how does this relate to the way I think and to what I do? So these are the three stages. Now, I'm amazed how many people tend to do this, especially when you come to a passage that talks about sheep and shepherds. Because even though we don't live in an agrarian society, Christians all tend to think that they know a lot about what shepherds are supposed to do to sheep and what she, how sheep behave and how sheep ought to respond. And everybody wants to be an expert on what the pastor is supposed to do. And as soon as the mention of the word shepherd comes along, shepherd and sheep, people jump to the analogy that this somehow has application to pastor. And I've heard so many people go to passages in this uh, chapter and related to pastors. And as we will see, if the interpretation doesn't have anything to do with pastors, then it can't apply. This has nothing to do with pastors and congregations. Let me make that clear. We'll come back to that a time or two. But that's not what we're talking about. In fact, we have some fascinating things that we're going to discover in this chapter. In fact... Of all the chapters in John, this chapter seems to have more verses that people go to and spend some time on. There are passages like, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, uh, that's in verse 11, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then one of the central passages for the deity of Christ and the unity of the Trinity is, I and the Father are one, in verse 30. So there are some important passages, verses, in this particular chapter, and we're going to take some time to go through them and to look at this. But first we have to... Uh, do some homework and lay down the foundation. Otherwise, we're going to just go all over the place and lose our focus. The passage begins, it seems like it just jumps into things when Jesus says, Truly, truly, 
I say to you, but it is, we're coming to the climax of the crescendo. He has been building an argument for the last couple of chapters. And the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees has been intensified. We have to think back on how John has developed this in his Gospel. In John chapter 2, there was his initial statement that if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And that immediately antagonized the Pharisees. In John 3, there's the discussion with Nicodemus where Jesus made it clear that the issue was authority. If your ultimate authority, Nicodemus, is going to be the things you think, the things you see, then how will you ever believe me when I not only tell you about the things on the earth, but I tell you about things in heaven? So he challenged Nicodemus at the core of his thinking in terms of ultimate authority issues. In John chapter 5, there is a more heated discussion following his healing of the cripple at the pool of Bethesda. And it was then that the Pharisees first determined that they were going to put him to death. And there is a continued uh, conflict as he makes clear his claims to deity and he claimed equality with God the Father. John chapter 6, there is further conflict. Now, I have, in, I have made a point of bringing to your attention the way Jesus has stirred the pot. And I don't want you to walk away with the impression that Jesus is just being argumentative or developing conflict for the sake of conflict. That's not what's, what's happening here. His attitude, Jesus is perfect. He's impeccable. There's no sin here. He's not on an ego trip. He's not trying to win an argument. He is not being argumentative or stirring up conflict simply for the sake of conflict. Jesus is making His claims. And the claims of truth are always going to divide people. That's one of the major themes in this section. And when Jesus makes His claims, those who reject Him in negative volition have to be antagonistic to Him. Truth divides people. And Jesus shows us how to stand our ground in a way that is calm, in a way that is grace-oriented, but it is in a way that doesn't back up. Jesus does not back up for anybody. He makes some extremely hard statements, some statements that are very confrontational, but He does not say them in a harsh or necessarily confrontational manner, if we understand that in some sort of arrogant way. His entire discourse is designed to illuminate to bring out into the open the thinking, the arrogance, the legalism of the Pharisees. He is exposing them for who they are and what they believe, that they don't know God, they don't want to know God, and they don't understand anything about the Old Testament. That's his purpose. And it's going to culminate here in this entire chapter when he is presenting, as I've said, this is like a courtroom scenario. And Jesus is the is the prosecuting attorney representing the kingdom of God, and, and the Pharisees are representing man, and he is going to show that they are bent on their own agenda, and that they are in fact the evil and wicked shepherds who have no right to shepherd the flock, and he is the one who has the credentials, and he is the ultimately the good shepherd. So we have to understand it in that 
context. Now, let me begin by just reading the first few verses of John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Now the last verse tells us that Jesus is going to be communicating an analogy to the people. He's going to be using an extended metaphor. So that causes us to go back and think a minute about those basic literary terms that we learn in the ninth grade or tenth grade and haven't thought about much since. There's a figure of speech called a simile. This always uses the terms like or as. I am like a door. I am like a shepherd. I am like a gate. That's a simile. A meta- it, is, it is a stated comparison. A metaphor is an unstated comparison. I am a door. I am a shepherd. I am the gate. That is, those are unstated comparisons. Jesus is not a literal gate. He's not a literal door. We covered this earlier when Jesus was talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, that these are, are metaphors. And when you extend it out in terms of a story like this, it's an allegory. An allegory is an extended metaphor where the different elements of the story relate to a principle. But like any allegory, you don't try to make every single detail mean something. That is the pathway to heresy, is once you start doing that. Now, in any given metaphor, you have, for example, in this passage, you have the metaphor of shepherd. Now, shepherd describes a field of meaning. Shepherds have all kinds of responsibilities. They do all kinds of things. They're not only, that's, that's their business, that's their job relating to sheep. And they do all kinds of things to sheep. They pick them up. They, they run their hands all over their bodies. They check for ticks. They check for uh, burrs and uh, stickers. And they uh, do a detailed, intimate examination of the sheep. Physically. I don't think that's what is talked about in the metaphor. By virtue of that, that's not what pastors are to do either. Just wanted to see if anybody was with me. That describes a field of meaning. Then you have your analogy. Your analogy here is to Jesus Christ in His role as the Good Shepherd. And that is the ministry of Christ described by this overlapping circle. It is in this area of overlap that there is the comparison. Not everything related to a shepherd is going to compare to the Lord Jesus Christ in His ministry. Not everything in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is analogous to the, ministry, to the work of a shepherd. Only some things. So we have to define that area of overlap. Now, how do we do that? Well, the way some people do it is through what is called allegorical interpretation. 
and they just kind of sit back and they think of all the things the shepherds do, and they say, hmm, let me see, how do I feel like Jesus did this today? And they wait for some hot flash or liver quiver and jump to some decision. Now, you laugh at that, and I poke fun at it and say it facetiously. The sad thing is, I got email this morning and yesterday from one of the missionaries we support, and he's telling me about some of the things that some people are teaching we're familiar with. I won't mention their names. Some churches who should know better and who have been more doctrinally oriented churches. The reason I have to say this is because, not just because some of you may run into some of their teachings, because I don't think so, but you might, but I know that there are people who get our tapes who will and do. And there, is, there has been a major shift in about three or four of these churches to this kind of liver-quiver, hot-flash, allegorical interpretation. And it is appalling what they are teaching, and it is just flat heretical. The Scriptures always define the interpretation for us. That's the principle. The Bible never leaves us hanging to just go out here and say, okay, how is Jesus going to compare to a shepherd? Let's figure that out. We're not left to our own devices. That's what allegory does. The Scripture always defines the parameter of meanings for any figures of speech. So let's see what the Scripture is going to tell us about the analogy of shepherd. It is one of the most important images used throughout the Bible. It's used by many different authors in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's used in different types of literature, and it's used throughout the many different centuries in which the Scripture was written. Point number one, it goes back to creation. God made the creation to show His handiwork. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Why are things the way they are? Why are horses the way they are? Because God made them that way. Why are sheep the way they are? Because God made sheep to be sheep and to have those characteristics so that He could use that animal as an analogy to teach certain things to Christians about the nature of the everyday believer. Now, we're going to get to that, not this week, but preview of coming attractions, that's not very complimentary. So, to understand this analogy, it's not happenstance. It doesn't, it's not by chance. The writers of Scripture didn't just look around and say, oh, let me find something in our culture to, uh, to grab hold of so that I can have a nice little analogy. It goes all the way back to the fact that God designed it this way. He designed sheep to be the way sheep are, to have the characteristics of sheep, to be dumb and unprotected animals that require a shepherd. Sheep are some of the dumbest animals there can be. I have a good friend of mine who, he, he was never a shepherd, but he has been a farmer and he has had a lot of experience with sheep. And I talked with him this week to get a little insight into sheepology. And he told me that, that one of the things he said was sheep can be totally unpredictable. One minute they act one way and the next minute they act another way. Every day they can follow the same routine and all of a sudden you bring, you're bringing them into the sheep pen and this old ewe in front will all of a sudden plant her legs 
look straight ahead, let out a screaming bleat, and turn tail and run. And everyone follows her. And no matter what you do, the rest of the night, you're never going to get one of them into that sheep pen. And the next day, they'll all go in as if nothing ever happened. They are difficult to deal with. If you are going to deal with sheep, you have to have an incredible amount of patience. It's probably why Paul told Timothy that he needed to be patient. And it's a characteristic that should apply to pastors because it's stated as such over in the pastorals. The person most responsible for dealing with the sheep is called a shepherd. And a shepherd is someone who knows the sheep inside and out. And in their culture of that day, the shepherds lived with the sheep. 24 hours a day when they were out in the fields, they knew every single one of them. And we will get into that analogy a little later on. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, we need to make sure about a couple of things here. When we look at Scripture, like John 10, we need to realize that every passage has a context. And as I've said before, one rule of hermeneutics is any text without a context is a pretext. Now, this particular passage has three, level of con- three levels of context we need to look at. The first level we need to examine is the overall biblical context which is what we're doing by going all the way back to creation. The second thing we need to look at is the cultural context of the time in which the Scripture is written. All Scripture must be interpreted in the time in which it is written. And point number three, we must look at the immediate context, in other words, John chapter 9, in order to understand why Jesus suddenly begins to talk about sheep and shepherds. So the first point is that in terms of the biblical context is to go back and realize that this is not by chance that God talks about sheep and that He has designed them to be a certain way. The second point, the second point is that prior to the first advent, we have the shepherd-sheep analogy used in several ways. These are important. The first is it's used of Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew name, the personal name of God. Looks like this in the Hebrew. Y-H-W-H. Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. They're supplied later. And we usually make cause the word to look like this because of a variety of reasons. It was transliterated as Jehovah earlier, but this is a more correct rendition. So the term shepherd is a term that is specifically used of Yahweh, of God. Psalm 23.1, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 79.13, so we thy people and the sheep of thy pasture will give thanks to thee forever. To all generations we will tell of thy praise. Psalm 80, verse 1. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, thou who dost lead Joseph like a flock, thou who art enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Psalm 95.7 For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice. And then Ezekiel 34.15 I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest. 
declares the Lord God. So the first point here, under point four, the Old Testament use of the shepherd-sheep analogy, it is used to speak of Yahweh, the Lord God. So it is an identification of deity. The second way in which it is used is of the kings, princes, and leaders of the nation Israel and of other nations at times as well. Turn with me to Psalm 78. We're going to spend a little time this morning in the Old Testament. Psalm 78. Just reiterate something I firmly believe is you can't really understand and appreciate or interpret the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament. When Jesus makes this statement, I am the Good Shepherd, He is speaking to people who know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so when he, they hear that phrase, they're thinking in terms of these passages that I'm telling you. Psalm 78, let's look down at verse 70. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. And we all know the story about David, the youngest brother who worked among the shepherd, that worked among the sheep. Now, most people picture David, just another little aside here, something free, no, no extra charge this morning. David was not a boy. He was the youngest, but we're told, when, his state, when he comes before Saul and Saul says, okay, what are your credentials to go out here and uh, fight Goliath? David, David uses a customary imperfect in the Hebrew, which indicates that he didn't do it once, but he did this several times. And there's other stories in the Old Testament about this. He says, well, when I was out with the sheep, whenever, that's the way it ought to be translated, whenever the bear would come along, whenever the lion would come along, I would go and kill them. Now, all he had was a shepherd's tools of a rod, a staff, and a slingshot. And he would go and do hand-to-hand combat with lions and bears on a regular basis. Now, in order to do that, and it wasn't miraculous, this is just what shepherds did. It was their daily job to protect the sheep. So in order to do that, we know, we also know from other factors, but we know that David had to be past puberty because he had to have a large enough frame and musculature in order to be able to fight. A a prepubescent boy is not going to have the kinds of muscles needed to be able to engage in that kind of a combat. We also know from a number of other chronological things that David was probably 16, 17, 18 years of age when this took place. So he is a lad, but he is not the shepherd boy. Also, Jonathan was 20 years older, but I'll get into that later. They were not the same age, and we know that for sure too. But I digress. Psalm 78, 70, He also chose David his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, and the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hand. So here we see that the term shepherd is used of David the king. It is used to describe the king over Israel. So it is a term that has an Old Testament connotation of God and an Old Testament connotation of the Davidic kingship. What does that tell us? When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, He is claiming undiminished deity and He is claiming to be the Messiah, Davidic kingship. What is the purpose for John? John says, 
These were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the Davidic kingship, the, the greater son of David promised, to God, promised by God to David in 2 Samuel 7 as part of the Davidic covenant. So when we come to this passage, we must understand the context. And the context is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament tells us that this is not just some little analogy that Jesus comes up with because he's walking out of the temple and he's down by the sheepfolds, and the shepherds are bringing the sheep in, and he decides to use this as an analogy. He is making a profound doctrinal point. That's why he introduces it by the phrase, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly, verily, verily. Every time he says that, it is to emphasize an important doctrinal point. Then the term sheep and shepherd, this analogy is used to describe the evil false teachers. Turn now to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. This is an indictment by God of the leaders of Israel. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and not attended to them. You have scattered my flock. Now stop a minute. Think about what we've just gone through in John 9. In John 9, Jesus healed the blind man. The blind man is brought before the Pharisees. The Pharisees go through this interrogation procedure to see what happened and how it happened. And he says, in his very simple but profound way, he refutes all their arguments, and he says, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And they say, we can't accept that. You've got to be lying. Get out of here, Egbalo. He is excommunicated from the synagogue. They are scattering my people. So the Pharisees are going to be the false shepherds. These are the shepherds that are condemned here in Jeremiah 23. They are false shepherds. They are scattering my flock. Uh, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you. For the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Jesus will refer to this later in John 10. He will say, but I have sheep who are not of this fold, and I will bring them in. And the Lord says, I have gathered my remnant from out of all the countries where I have driven them, and shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply." Now, let's go to one other important passage. Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. The whole passage, this whole chapter, we don't have time to go through the whole thing in detail, but I want to hit the high points. This whole chapter is crucial to understanding John 10. The first ten verses relate to the false shepherds. Then came the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, this is Ezekiel, the prophet, says, Say, uh, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. These are the leaders of the people. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe. This is, woe is always an announcement of judgment. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, arrogance, self-orientation in the religious leaders. This is the problem. Religion always hates grace. 
Religion is defined as the attempt to gain God's favor through our own personal efforts. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship based upon everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's based on grace. Religion is manipulative. Religion is dominating. Religion destroys freedom. Religion feeds the arrogance and the power lust of those who are in charge of the religious system. Thus says the Lord God, Woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. What just happened in John 9? The blind man was healed. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. Not only was a blind man healed, but they could care less. They were more concerned that Jesus violated Mishnah 7.2, the Shabbat 7.2, and all of their other little picayune traditions about applying the Sabbath law than that this man who was congenitally blind could now see. And furthermore, they were callous to the fact that this indicated that the man who did it was the Messiah. So what we see here is, is that they fit the bill of the false shepherd. They, they, those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. In fact, they've been scattering, kicking the guy out of the synagogue. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you've dominated them. There was this atmosphere of fear when they brought the, when the Pharisees brought his parents in. They said, man, we don't, we, don't, we don't know who healed him. We don't know who he is. All we know is he's our son. Yeah, he was blind, but we don't know anything. Let us out of here. Why, John says, because they were afraid of the Pharisees. The, the religion dominates. Religion enslaves. Verse 5, And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and were, were scattered. Then we, let's skip down to... Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So who is it that is seeking the sheep? It is God. God is saying, It's me. So when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, He's clearly claiming deity. As a shepherd, verse 12, As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And this, of course, refers to the restoration of the nation Israel at the end of the tribulation when God, when Jesus Christ will bring them back from the four corners of the earth to the land of Israel and at that time fulfills all of the Old Testament promises to a literal Israel in the literal land promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, I think that's enough in terms of Old Testament background for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Now we must come to the second area of context, and that is the cultural context. What was going on in Jesus' day? The function of sheep and shepherds at that particular time. And I have for us an overhead map of Jerusalem, there we go, Jerusalem during the time of Christ. Now the green area here, I've just been waiting to use this, the the green area here and down here, those areas were, were built up uh, 
by Agrippa I. That's what you have, your little uh, legend up here. And that was after Christ was crucified. So the city at the time of Christ is the city that's outlined here in brown. And here's the temple north. Remember, north is always up. For those of you who are never in the military, north is always up. And here's the temple area. This is, if you can, you can see it here, you have these real tight uh, lines here that indicate that the terrain drops off very rapidly. And it's, a, it's a, the, the pinnacle there, and it's a very rapid drop. And, of course, over here on the right, this is to the east, and this is the entry gate. The gate beautiful is right here. And this is the court of the uh, court of the women, and then this is the temple itself. And so it was right out here, out, outside the gate, beautiful, that the woman that was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. Now that's early this same morning. John eight, nine, and ten are all on the same day. So I'm trying to build the context for you. And that was when he looks out, and after she departs, and he sees he's looking east, sees the sun come up, and he says, "Behold, I am the light of the world." And we've seen several times that he relates that to daytime, while the Messiah is with you in the day, but night is coming. So it's related to, to the, uh, the day analogy. It's not related to the candelabra at this particular point. So when Jesus leaves, he comes out here, and he comes out the gate, and it's outside the portico here that he, somewhere in this area, maybe, maybe over here, but somewhere around here, that Jesus runs into this blind man and heals him. And then all these things take place, and Jesus is still in this area. And then right here, just north of the temple enclosure, you see a gate in the outer wall of Jerusalem. This is the sheep gate. It is called the sheep gate because that's where they bring the sheep in and out. And if you bring sheep in and out of the sheep gate, it's going to begin to take on certain characteristics of sheep. And so that was called... Now, why did they bring the sheep in? Because they're bringing them in for the temple sacrifices. So what do you have to do with a... With a, a if you have 8, 10, 20 flocks of sheep, what do you have to do with them? You have to pin them up somewhere. So there were various pins in this area here where they pinned the, the temple flocks. And just because we haven't... Uh, didn't have this map when we did it. The pool of Siloam, here's Hezekiah's tunnel. The Siloam pool is down here. Remember when he healed the blind man and he put the clay on his eyes, he's up here at the temple and he says, go to the pool of Siloam to wash it off. So he's got to go all the way down here, down these steps, uh, all the way down here, out the valley gate, and all the way around the wall to the pool of Siloam. And he's blind. Represented positive volition. Okay, now we have the geographical context of what's taking place here. And you have these various flocks. And they were, they're all stored outside. Uh, they, they're kept there in these flocks. I mean, in these pens, these sheep pens. And what would happen is the shepherds would take them out during the daytime. And they would take the flocks out and pasture them oh, in this area here and up on the hills, and then at night they would bring them in through the sheep gate and they would put them into the pens. And there might be two or three different flocks all in one pen. 
and then the shepherd would leave. And he would go home, or he would go out for dinner, or he would go visit friends, and he would leave an attendant in charge at the gate. So there's only one gate in, in the sheep pen. Now, here's a picture of a sheep pen out in the desert. And you can see, I think, from this picture that... Uh, not sure. I think the entryway was somewhere, I'm not sure, somewhere around in here. But there's one entryway into the sheep pen, and it's just a rock wall, and we're familiar with what rock walls look like around here. And you see the sheep all wandering around out in this area, and then the, the, there's one pen, one enclosure here, and then there's another enclosure out here, and that's where most of these sheep are. And then, uh, I can't pick it out here, but I think that, yeah, here's the shepherd uh, standing right in this area here. So that gives you some idea of what these, um, what these sheep pens look like. Now the interesting thing, and they still do it today, the Bedouin shepherds in Israel still do this. When they're out with the sheep, they walk around and they will constantly have a little call. Bedo, Bedo, Bedo. And they just say this over and over again. And the sheep get used to hearing whatever the word is, whatever the phrase is, and they hear the voice of the shepherd. So when the shepherd brings them in and puts them in a pen mixed up with other sheep, the next morning he comes back and he is the legitimate shepherd, comes up to the attendant who knows who he is, identifies him, and lets the shepherd into the sheepfold. He goes in, there's three, three or four flocks in there. How does he separate them? He walks around the wall saying, Beto, Beto, and he just walks around and all the sheep hear his voice. They rec- they won't. Somebody else can come in saying the same word, a different voice. They don't they ignore him. But his voice, and they hear that phrase, and they start to follow him. And he just walks right out that gate, and all of his sheep follow him, and the rest of them stay there. And they do that to this day, and then he takes them out into the pasture, and there they uh, pasture, and they feed, and, and then he brings them back in at night. Now, when they're out in the, in the wilderness... In an area like this, they might have the rock wall there, but there's no gate in the wall. There's just the opening. So how does the shepherd make sure they don't wander out at night? The shepherd lies down across the the opening, across the threshold, and he becomes the door. So there's going to be a shift in this metaphor that Jesus presents in this chapter. At the beginning, he's the shepherd. Then he says, I am the door, and he's tying these relationships together. So we have to work our way through this thing. We have to understand the cultural context of how shepherds operated at that time, and, and they still operate that way in, um, in many cases today. Now we have to look at the biblical context. What has been happening here? The Pharisees have just demonstrated that they have more concern for their petty non-biblical regulations about the observance of Shabbat 7-2 and other details in the law than they are about alleviating the suffering of the blind man or healing him or its significance as a sign of the Messiah. They have accused him of being a liar, of being a perjurer, of, of just making the whole thing up. They've rejected his evidence, they've rejected the evidence of his parents, and they have ejected him, excommunicated him from the synagogue. As the leaders of the nation, they have failed. They have failed to accept Christ's messianic claims. They have threatened his life. 
they have been more concerned about their own traditions, their own desires, than they have, and their own power than they have about the true spiritual needs of the people. They are, in the analogy, they are the evil shepherds in contrast to Jesus who is laying claim to be the good shepherd. He is the one who is concerned with the sheep and the spiritual needs of the sheep. He is the one whose voice they, they hear. When G, How do they hear His voice? Who heard His voice? The blind man heard His voice. And we saw that at the end of John chapter 9. The blind man comes to Him and says, Well, who are you and, and how can I be saved? And Jesus says, You must believe on the Son of Man and I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you... Oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter. Jesus said to him at the end of John chapter 9, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And then in verse 37, he says, You have both seen Him, and He is the one who is talking with you. And the blind man, now healed, says, Lord, I believe you. And so he is saved. And then Jesus makes the statement in verse 40 and 41 that those who had revelation have more accountability because... They have had this revelation of His very presence before them. So now we have seen the context. We have seen the biblical context from the Old Testament. We have seen the historical, cultural context. And we have seen the biblical context. What Jesus says in chapter 10 is to illustrate the dynamics of what went on in chapter 9. Let's begin. Verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other and a robber. The phrase that he begins with, translated truly, truly in the New American Standard, verily, verily in the Old Testament, is literally in the Greek, amen, amen. Looks like this. It's what you say at the end of prayer. Little did you know, you did know at least one Greek word besides baklava and heroes. Amen. And it means that which is true, but it is used idiomatically to emphasize a point. Truly, truly, this is an important point of eternal truth. This is a doctrinal principle. Pay attention to what I am saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way as a thief and a robber. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter is the uh, present uh, passive participle of ace erechomites, a deponent verb, so it has an active meaning. Looks like this. This is a very important word, ace erechomite. It's a compound word. Erechomite means to enter when it is in, when it is to uh, combined with the preposition ace. It means to go into, very specifically, to enter, go from one place into another place. It's a word that is used in demon possession, that a demon entered into someone. And just for emphasis, to make sure you understand, it means entrance into something. It is combined with the preposition ace to further emphasize that point. Jesus says, truly I say to you, the one who enters 
into the sheepfold through the door. Important phrase. Dia plus the genitive. Preposition D-I-A can either govern, take a genitive case or an accusative case. When it takes an accusative case, it means because. That's not what we find here. This is the same phrase we find in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It emphasizes the means. So it is means and it should be translated through. It's a little more precise than by. The shepherd enter, must, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold, but climbs up some other way. What would happen is you have this area and you have all the various sheep pens and thieves and robbers would hang out back here in, the, in between the pens hoping they could snatch a lamb. Go home and have a little lamb stew, a rack of lamb or lamb chops for dinner. And they would uh, grab, grab a lamb and make off with it or they would hide in the shadows. And when nighttime came, these walls were about eight feet high, they would climb over the walls and try to steal the sheep. They looked upon the sheep as something that was there for their own personal pleasure. They had no right to it. And it's a perfect picture of religion. The religious leaders and all religions in human history operate from the basis of whoever the leaders are. Either They're either operating on approbation lust, or on power lust, or a combination of the two, or in a lot of cases, money lust comes into it. But they often try to come up with some kind of new, interesting uh, interpretation of Scripture that I've got a new insight as to how to interpret this passage and we've got to look between the lines and discover the spiritual meaning and it has nothing to do with any governing rules of hermeneutics. And it's sad to say that people who ought to know better are practicing this today. It's very, very sad, and we need to always watch how people handle the Scriptures. Nobody, in case I ever do this, you can straighten me out later, nobody has the right to say, I've got the training, I've been to seminary, you just listen to me, and I'll tell you what the Bible means. Even the Apostle Paul, a man with the gift of apostleship, one of the very few people in history to whom God spoke and to whom God revealed doctrine and doctrine that God revealed to nobody else. Even the Apostle Paul praised the believers at Berea because, he says in Acts, they did not take my word for it, but they searched the Scriptures daily to see that it was so. In other words, you can go to the Scriptures even if you don't know the original languages. You know enough to be able to look at the Scriptures and make sure that it fits the Scriptures. And not just somebody come along and say, well, there's a spiritual meaning here, and if you really are in touch with God, you'll know what this means. Divorce from normal rules of grammar, syntax, historical, grammatical interpretation. So, we look at this and we see the historical context. They would just come in and they would want to use the sheep for their own purposes, and that's what happens when people start getting into religion. That's the methodology of all the cults. He who does not enter by the door into the fold, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. And of course he's talking about the Pharisees. Now he's calling them 
thieves and robbers a little while earlier. He was calling them of their father the devil. So Jesus does not mince words. He's not afraid to tell them exactly what the truth is, but He doesn't do it in an unkind or malicious manner. He is just explaining the truth as it is. They come up by another way. They are a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So here we have door. The door is the proper and legitimate entryway for the shepherd. What was the legitimate entryway for Jesus as the shepherd? The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 7.14, that He would enter by means of the virgin birth. Micah 5.2, that He would be born in Bethlehem. That He would be of the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, that He would be a child, a descendant of David. All of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That He would have a, a ministry that included miracles. Isaiah 35, 5-6 and that he would be presented by a forerunner in Malachi 3.1. So there were certain qualifications. There was a specific doorway, and that door is really the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it had to follow certain prophesied patterns. So here we see that in relation to this, number one, that Jesus is the shepherd, the Messiah, the true King of Israel, and He is identified as Yahweh. Secondly, we see the door is the incarnation, and this is the entrance into the fold, and there is only one proper way to enter the fold, and the Pharisees could not enter the legitimate way. Third, the door is the incarnation going in. Remember, here's a sheepfold. You've got to find a better, better marker. Here's the sheepfold has one door right here. There's an entrance and there is an exit. In the entrance, the door stands for the incarnation. But if you are a sheep on the inside and you're exiting to pasture, the door is the cross. All doors have two sides. One side is the incarnation of Christ. The other side, which is the way to exit into the pasture, which is phase two, the Christian life, is the cross. Now, Jesus says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And He is claiming that He is the one who has entered by the legitimate way as the shepherd. Verse 3, To Him the doorkeeper opens. Who is the doorkeeper? It is the forerunner, the announcer of the Messiah. It is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the keeper of the sheep. And he, as the keeper of the sheep, is the one who recognized the shepherd and allows the legitimate shepherd to enter into the sheepfold. So, the, the keeper of the sheep, the doorkeeper, was John the Baptist. And then the sheep hear his voice. And this is when Jesus comes and he teaches the gospel. And as he said to the Blind man. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That is the call of the shepherd. And the sheep, those who are on positive volition, they hear His voice and they respond as the blind man did and says, Lord, I believe. So Jesus goes in as the shepherd through the door. He walks through the sheepfold saying, 
believe on the Son of Man. Those who are of His flock say, I believe, and then they walk out the door to pasture. See, that's the point. It's not to stay in the sheepfold. The point is to go through the door and out to pasture and feed on the Word of God so you can get nourishment and grow. And that's not going to happen by staying in the sheepfold. You have to go out to pasture. You have to daily take in the Word. You have to study, as we saw this morning in the first hour. You have to make this the priority of your life because if we are going to make the priority of our life pleasing the Lord, according to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, that is our priority. You can't please the Lord if you don't know what pleases the Lord. And the only way you're going to know what pleases the Lord is to know the Lord and to know His Word. So that has to be the priority of your life. Now, verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In the, in the Middle East, each shepherd will name his sheep. He'll have a name for every single one of them. And he knows who they are and he can identify them. Now, verse 4, When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They don't follow someone else. They hear the true Messiah. They're on positive volition. So they, when they hear the truth, they respond to it. And verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow. So you don't have to worry. If you know somebody who's in a cult, they don't know their shepherd's voice. They're not positive. They're not listening. Now, they, they may be, and it may be five, ten years down the road before they decide they're following a false shepherd. And that sometimes happens. But many times we see that when people get caught up in all of these other groups, they're really not positive to God. They're just positive to religion. And then verse 6, we're told that this is merely an analogy. So what is the point of the analogy that we've learned so far? That Jesus is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be deity. He is claiming to be the only true shepherd, the only true leader of the people, the Messiah, the Davidic King. And He is claiming to be the one who calls them by what He says, which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the course of explaining this, He is indicting the Pharisees for their failure to properly lead the people and is calling them evil shepherds and accusing them of all the things that are said in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now next time, we're going to come back and look at the second stage of this analogy in verse 7, where Jesus says to them, "...truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep." One of the problems in understanding this passage is people try to fit everything together. Jesus moves, He stair-steps His analogies. And so what's true in one analogy may, be, may not be true in the next. He's going to shift His meanings, and so we have to look precisely at each one. There's not some universal uh, interpretive code for the whole thing. And we will look at this and look at the importance of this to the spiritual life starting in uh, verse 7 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word today to see how remarkably You have brought everything together, that Your Word is coherent, that You have explained things from the beginning to the end, and there's no discontinuity, there's no contradiction. It is all, every detail adheres together, and what we find in one passage supports and confirms what we find in another passage, and that everything fits together perfectly because You are a God of infinite knowledge and wisdom, and You have revealed Yourself to us in such a phenomenal and remarkable way. Father, we thank You for the evidence that You've given us that our Lord Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be 
undiminished deity and true humanity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without hope, without eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would be comforted by the promise of your word that there is salvation in no other name other than that of Jesus Christ. That this, the way to salvation is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that they would take the opportunity right now to make certain their eternal destiny by expressing their faith and trust in privacy to you in simple prayer saying, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for my sins and that He is my only hope of salvation. Now, Father, we just close now in prayer and pray that You would remind us of these things and challenge us with these principles. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.